security number, your birthday, your wages. The facts that these machines are dealing with are highly personal. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast, a Castbox original show. As always, and thankfully, I'm still Matthew House Barbie, and I'm joined by my co-host Austin Knight. Hey, Matt, glad to know that you are still you, and uh, <laughs> hello to everyone listening yet again. Yeah, it's it is a relief to know that I have not morphed into another human being. <laughs> so always good. Um, so we have a super interesting episode, which is doubly special today because myself and Austin actually recorded this entire thing earlier and then (laughs) I'm an idiot and messed up my microphone. So now we're going for the second attempt. I am pretty certain our jokes are going to be just as funny, Austin, right? (laughs) I sure hope so. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, so we we had a really fascinating chat with a wonderful gentleman called Edmund John. He is the founder of SelfKey, in amongst a number of other businesses, and he is a real advocate for blockchain-based digital identities. And we've talked a bunch about this in the past, and we will be speaking to him a little later on in the show. Yeah, this was easily one of the best interviews that we've had to date both in terms of the technology and the philosophy that Edmund brought to the table. It's uh, very interesting and I think very pertinent to the tech space here and now. Before we dive into that, though, let's go through some recent headlines in the space because a lot of interesting and unique stuff has been happening. Unique in the blockchain space? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, we we talked a bit last episode about how Tim Berners-Lee is coming in to save us all yet again from the, the evils of giant companies. And we've now got another internet pioneer in Bram Cohen, who has an interesting story come out around him. For those of you that don't know who Bram Cohen is, he is the guy that created BitTorrent. So you can thank him for all of the movies that you definitely didn't illegally download. Um, (laughs) Well, Bram has said he wants to build a better Bitcoin, which is interesting. Yeah, that's a pretty hefty statement. We'll link to a good story on this via Wired in the description if you want to read more about this yourself. But what Bram has essentially done is launched a cryptocurrency project called Chia, uh, like the Chia pet. But it's not, <laughs> it's not a Chia pet. It's uh, it is definitely a cryptocurrency project. Uh, and the Are website. You sure, I'm sure there's an ICO in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, there's there is some overlap. Um, the website is calling it Green Money for a Digital World. And if I remember correctly, Chia pets have green hair that are plant-based hair. Uh, so there, oh, there is there some similarity go. here. But uh, in all seriousness, they are focused on creating green as an environmentally friendly money for what they're calling a digital world. And it seems to be focused all on minimal energy usage. So uh, what they're saying is that they're building a blockchain based on something called proofs of space uh, mm. and that it's time to make a cryptocurrency that is less wasteful more decentralized and more secure. Mm, sounds yeah. provocative. It is. Uh, <laughs> it is certainly is. This is interesting, right? Because like me and me and Austin, we've been talking about this for a, a bunch of time today, trying to get our head around some of these, some of the concepts that 
Chia puts together. And the big piece here, right, you've got the likes of Bitcoin. And when Bram says about wants to build a better Bitcoin, I think it really is from the angle of Bitcoin is great, but it has a severe impact on our environment. We were joking about how there's like a million news stories of Bitcoin uses more energy than Ireland. I read like recently it uses more than Serbia. Who knows which uses more than both of those? I have no <laughs> idea. But Bitcoin uses proof of work as a consensus mechanism. And we've discussed this in the past. We had a fantastic episode. I think it was episode 10 of this season's with Alexis Senapana from uh, Mechanism Labs. And they talked a lot about a bunch of alternative research or sorry research into alternative consensus methods i.e different things from proof of work now chia is using what they call proof of space and when me and you were talking austin we were initially first went to okay i guess this is kind of like Saya, which we seem to talk about every single bloody episode now, right? And uh, <laughs> storage and made safe. But that doesn't seem to actually be the case. Yeah. So while proof of work is focused on processing power, proof of space is focused on hard drive space. But that shouldn't be confused with storage or what you would call like a proof of storage consensus model. So the Chio website states storage via a blockchain protocol is storage of some data that is directly useful. Proof of storage protocols like Filecoin, MadeSafe, Saya, or Storage require ridiculous amounts of bandwidth, and those concepts will not be used in the Chia protocol. Proofs of space are data which is useless for anything but generating proofs of space. Making proof of space or providing a proof of space to the network requires essentially no bandwidth. So in this respect, mm. proof of space may be a bit like proof of stake, where the stake is hard drive space, if that makes sense. Yeah, we're not talking about meat here, right? We're talking about staking cash. Yes. Uh, so, <laughs> proof of stake. How many stakes can you fill a warehouse with to deliver consensus? Um, <laughs> this would not surprise me if there was a blockchain project focused on that. But one thing that I think is helped when me and you were talking about this, Austin, earlier was like trying to get our head around this. So you've got every type of consensus system focuses on an exchange from the miner, or in Chia's sense, they call it farming versus mining. So you're a farmer as opposed to a miner. Different tools, same craft, I guess. And you've got, with proof of work, with things like Bitcoin, you're exchanging processing power in exchange for the more processing power you power into the network, the higher the likelihood that you'll get greater rewards from the network. There's also a higher or a greater expense in terms of energy usage that you're using and an environmental impact. Yeah. Proof of stake, though, very different, which a bunch, I know Ethereum's going to be moving to proof of stake. There are already a number of proof of stake blockchains out there where instead of trading off processing power, you're staking cash or cryptocurrency tokens that you own. The more you stake in the consensus system, the greater the chance of getting a reward. The, the difference being here is you don't need to deliver processing power. There's no energy involved there. The risk to you is if you try to do something malicious on the network, you could lose everything you staked. 
And in this respect, it seems that this is kind of like a proof of stake, but instead of staking cash, you're staking space, which again, requires not necessarily no energy, but very, very minimal, because it seems like the differentiation from what we've gathered, at least, bear in mind, me and Austin are kind of fumbling our way through this, so feel free to harass us on Twitter and tell us we got all of this wrong. Um, well, harass Austin, don't harass me. He's the, he's the guy that did all this. And uh, the difference seems to be with like storage, i.e. like Saya, Filecoin and Co. versus Chia, which is space, is that the storage space being used is not being consistently like read and written to and actively used. It's just being held as validation for the proof. So... Yeah. If any of that actually was coherent and made sense. It kind of makes sense to me when I when I speak my own words. Yeah, I mean, the way that I would think of this is that proof of space only blocks off hard drive space rather than occupying it with actual files. And because mm. of this, it requires very little bandwidth. I mean, you could imagine like just a few bits saying, hey, take this space. And that's all that's transferred compared to storage models like Filecoin or Saya that actually place real bulky files in the space. So what this means is that less electricity is used in the process of proof of space because less information needs to be transferred. It also means that farmers, which Chia likes to, to use this term farmers as opposed to miners, as the like the people that are part of the network, uh, can increase or reduce the size of their farm very quickly and easily without needing to find like a different place for the files that were placed on their hard drive. And they're, mm. they're calling this process of increasing and reducing the size of a farm seeding, which is uh, somewhat similar to previous BitTorrent terminology that we've seen. Yeah, that's a nice throwback. I like yeah. it. And another interesting fun fact on this that adds to this whole situation is that actually back in June 2018, Justin Sun, the founder of the cryptocurrency Tron, actually acquired BitTorrent from Bram Cohen. And Bram Cohen then left BitTorrent and just kept a board seat. And then a couple of months later, August 2018, just vacated his seat on the board to focus completely on Chia. So this is really interesting. Clearly, Bram Cohen has had his mind on the blockchain space. He's been a pioneer of kind of a very similar version of what he's trying to do here, what you did with BitTorrent, but in a decentralized way now. Well, yeah. actually, peer-to-peer -peer is still to an extent, decentralized, but I think more using blockchain technology. I'm personally really interested to see what happens with this project. I think it's launching early 2019. Mm -hmm. I would love if we can actually get Bram to come and have a chat on the, the Decrypting Crypto podcast. Yeah, it'd be interesting to talk about. It certainly would. So Bram, again, just like Tim Bennesley, assume you're both listening avidly. <laughs> Hit us up on Twitter at The Coin Offering. Drop us an email, podcast at thecoinoffering.com. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely feature you on the show. Love to chat. So Chia to one side. It turns out the, the other news story is that China has basically hacked half of the world, right? And uh, I mean, okay, that's a slight exaggeration. But while this isn't strictly a blockchain news story, it is a very, well... To say it's interesting, a very worrying, but yeah. also 
morbidly fascinating story as well. So why don't we dive into this one? Yeah, this one, I would say it's not just relevant to blockchain. It's not just relevant to tech community members. It's relevant to humans on Earth. This is something that impacts everyone. Uh, Bloomberg mm. recently published a, a really excellent in-depth story on this that we'll link to in the description, which details a long-term attack by Chinese spies who they identified to be operatives from a unit of the People's Liberation Army, which reached almost 30 U.S. companies, including Amazon and Apple, by compromising America's technology supply chain. And how they did this is they added a tiny microchip, which was no bigger than a grain of rice, to motherboards that were used by a number of major manufacturers in the U.S., and it went undetected. The way that yeah. this occurred was these microchips were either gray or off-white in color, so they looked more like signal conditioning couplers, which is another common motherboard component, than they looked like microchips. And so they were very unlikely to be detected without highly specialized equipment. There's a photo in the Bloomberg article that you can look at of the microchip. And honestly, it's, it's mind like, blowing. it's mind, yeah, it's mind blowing. It's already tiny by itself. But then when you put that into the context of a motherboard, which is just extremely visually complex, it's so easy to lose it there. Yeah, like when they do this thing on the Bloomberg article, which is pretty awesome, actually, just from the article's point of view, they they basically visualize the motherboard with all the components. They slowly strip away bit by bit by bit by bit. And you don't really see it at all. And even when it strips down to just the raw green silicon board you can't really see it and then it yeah. draws this little white circle and it points it out and it's just like how can anyone notice this it, it's yeah. insane yeah um but the story of how it kind of got there in the first place is particularly interesting so multiple people generally familiar with the investigation which actually has been going on since 2015 this all started by Amazon doing some due diligence into a company that they were looking to acquire. That company was called Elemental Technologies. They were a Portland, Oregon-based startup, and they were focused on primarily like video streaming, but where they would take like huge video files, compress them down. It's like super specialist work, and they built out software and hardware to do well. They brought in hardware, but they developed the software to do this. And here, here's where we start to paint a picture for the impact here. So Elemental's technology had helped stream the Olympic Games online, communicate with the International Space Station, and funnel drone footage to the CIA. Probably not the kind of stuff you want to get leaked. Well... <laughs> The, these expensive servers that had to do all of the, the legwork here were assembled in San Jose by a company called Supermicro. And some of you may have heard of Supermicro, they're one of the largest suppliers of motherboards in the world. 
what happened next? <laughs> yeah, so it looks like it was during this process at Supermicro where the security was compromised. And Elemental, whose, as we mentioned, servers can be found in Department of Defense data centers, CIA drone operations, onboard networks of Navy warships. It was just one of hundreds of Supermicro customers. In fact, Supermicro had over 900 customers in 100 countries in 2015. Because of this, they offered inroads to a bountiful collection of sensitive targets. Uh, a former U.S. intelligence official who studied Supermicro and its business model said, think of Supermicro as the Microsoft of the hardware world. Attacking Supermicro motherboards is like attacking Windows. It's like attacking the whole world. So that raises <laughs> sort of... What could go wrong? Yeah. What could go wrong, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> it, it raises uh, a question about how those, how the chips actually got there in the first place. Multiple people familiar with the matter say that investigators found the chips had been inserted at factories run by manufacturing subcontractors in China. There are essentially mm. two ways for spies to do something like this and alter the guts of computer equipment. One of them is known as interdiction, which is when the devices are manipulated when they're in transit from the manufacturer to the customer. And this is something that uh, US spy agencies like to, to do, according to documents leaked by the NSA contractor or former NSA contractor, Edward Snowden. But the other method in involves seeding changes from the very beginning. And that's even more worrisome. We also know that China, by some estimates, makes around 75% of the world's mobile phones and 90% of its PCs. So it is uniquely positioned to, to do something like this. Austin, I have a feeling that this is a coordinated attack to find and listen to our podcast episodes before they are released on Fridays. <laughs> if China is listening to our new episodes on Thursdays, I'm going to be furious. Someone <laughs> has to pay for this, right? This yes. is outrageous. <laughs> but joking to one side, this is pretty f***ing terrifying. Yeah. Um, and I guess, I mean, it makes for a fascinating story slash I'm sure there'll be some kind of Netflix original that comes out on this at some point. But you should definitely read the article on Bloomberg super super interesting we'll share it in the show notes i mean taking this back a bit to blockchain could blockchain technology solve this not completely could it help in some of this i think from some of the conversations we've had with some of our previous guests where we talk about supply chain and being able to trace back the original source of where components are built who has handled them during different stages of the supply chain i think that's where this can be useful for both proactive measures and like after attacks have happened is like diagnosing where that may have gone wrong i'm sure there's going to be a lot more news around this and i mean the thing you're probably thinking listening right now is like this is probably what we know who knows what we don't know right like yeah so terror and craziness and revolutions and better bitcoins to one side why don't we move into our main feature where we'll be getting some light relief and talking to Edmund John, the founder of SelfKey, where we're going to be digging in awesome interview with Edmund talking all about digital identities. Edmund, welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time out to come on the show. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Edmund, why don't we kick things off by letting our listeners know a little bit how you initially got involved in entrepreneurship and how you got to the stage that you are today involved in the blockchain space? Sure. So really, my first foray into entrepreneurship was setting up a company in the US to be a registered agent. So I was before that a licensed broker selling real estate in the Boston area while I was still in university. And the housing market collapsed. And really, I found myself without a market to sell into because everyone was underwater in their mortgages and no one was buying or selling homes. Mm. So uh, I did know that that one thing that was necessary for these uh, real estate buyers or sellers, they had to both open and maintain a legal entity, oftentimes for every property. And so I started a company that was setting up legal entities, sometimes called a registered agent in the US, corporate secretary elsewhere in the world. Right. So we would set up a company and then refer that company on to get a bank account. So that, that business uh, sort of evolved and became a company called Flag Theory. But from there, I, I really recognized that one of the biggest problems with scaling that business was that KYC was an issue, meaning that it was very inefficient. It was oftentimes insecure to pass along people's documents and data. KYC stands for know your customer, and it's an identification process that most people at this point know, even if they're not in the in the financial industry. Mm-hmm. Sort of a lot of ICOs and, and exchanges will require you to submit your KYC. And every time you submit your KYC, it's a very expensive and oftentimes tedious and slow process for the business to accept and go through that information. And it's also quite tedious for the individual to go through that unique KYC process over and over again, especially if you're opening up multiple accounts. So in 2014, I wrote a white paper on how potentially we could use blockchain technology to make this identity issue just a little bit less painful and a little bit more private and secure. So after I wrote that white paper, I had it peer reviewed and I didn't do an ICO at that time. Uh, (laughs) I I set out and started building that product. I was working for a dev shop at that point and uh, kind of as a co-owner and and I had access to some developers and we started building that that software. So uh, that's how kind of my first foray into blockchain came about was, was through this company called KYC Chain that we started to try to solve some of the problems with KYC. Just to finish out and round out that story, um, we'd always had a piece of our roadmap where we'd identified the need for an identity wallet. And we realized a couple years later, around 2016, 2017, that even though we'd created a lot of efficiency gains for an organization, for a business, B2B, we hadn't returned a whole lot of value to the individual customer, the identity owner, as we call them now. They still had to go through the whole process over and over again. And even though we'd created some efficiency within an organization, across business line, even across different companies, we hadn't returned the value to the individual. So that's when we decided to do a token sale for our identity wallet and open source that and really focus in earnest on on that product. So I guess that's kind of how you'd say I got into crypto and got into blockchain. Very interesting path. And that identity wallet that you mentioned, you're calling that self-key, correct? Yeah. So that is the self-key identity wallet. It's actually live now, so anyone can go and download it. It's free and open source. Awesome. Could you tell us about self-key and what it what it does, how it may be different from other identity wallets that we've previously talked about on the show, which our <laughs> listeners are probably all too familiar with now? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that we have our, our individual 
unique selling proposition and product differentiation. But essentially what we have is an open source wallet. And I think that open source is really, really important when you're developing a wallet, because otherwise you could be planting a backdoor in there that the customers don't necessarily know about. Now, whether they're technical enough to understand what all that code means or not is one thing, but at least it's there, it's auditable. Anyone anywhere in the world could come and call us out and be like, hey, you know, you guys have a backdoor in your in your wallet. So right. I, I really feel very strongly that all wallets should be open source. So first and foremost, it's a it's a cryptocurrency wallet, holds your Ethereum and ERC20 tokens. And then beyond that, you can also store your identity there. And when I say store your identity there, where is there? It's it's locally on your device. So it's not in the cloud, it's not a server based infrastructure like some identity wallets without naming them uh, without naming <laughs> names that that is i think a huge problem because then you're creating a centralization a centralized system like that would have a single point of failure where if anyone hacked that server they would have access to all of the identities beyond that if you were subpoenaed and you had a centralized server with all those data you'd, you'd have to give it up so we sort of have a zero knowledge policy on our users where we don't know what you're storing in that wallet but an identity wallet just kind of existing when it's on itself uh, doesn't do all that much. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I really want to sign up for an identity wallet today, right? Like <laughs> no one in the history of mankind has ever had that thought. I'm sure there are some people out there. I'm sure there are. <laughs> I was going to say, that is Matt every morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm kind of an early adopter and dork too. So I do have a bunch of identity wallets on my phone. But um, that's more from a competitive research standpoint. Um, I think that people are driven by wanting to solve a problem, right? And the problem that we want to solve is making it easy to sign up for financial services. So people have woken up in the morning and said, darn it, I really need a new bank account because the other one has these issues or charges me high fees. I really need a new exchange account because I have this new asset that I bought into in an ICO and I need to get liquidity. And we want to make it easy to discover and then sign up for those financial services, ideally making it as easy as one click to sign up. So that's kind of our go-to-market is, is providing that identity wallet, but also a marketplace of different products and services that integrate with our wallet that they can easily sign up for, the identity owner can sign up for. Interesting. And I think both myself and Austin, we've been looking through the website, playing around with self-care a little bit ourselves, and we, we have some questions that we'd love to dig into. But one of the first things that to take a little bit of a step back, right? Like front and center of the self-key website, I, I saw this line that kind of stood out to me and it seems to be the core value proposition that you put forward, right? And it says, empowering individuals and organizations to find more freedom and privacy through the ownership of their digital identity. Th this seems to be, to me, like something that clearly from what you're talking about so far, Edmund, is something that you're particularly passionate about and have quite strong opinions on. So. What, could, could you explain to both myself and Austin and also our listeners why you believe this to be important? Sure. Yeah. So getting away from our product level features where I sound like a sales guy, um, <laughs> philosophically, I, I think that this is really one of the most important topics and issues of our time. And I feel like even if I fail doing this project, I'll have succeeded because it's such a worthwhile cause to work on. And, and I won't stop for any reason effectively uh, working on this project because I, I think it really is that important. And the reason why I think it's so important is that as we move into an age where our lives are increasingly more digital, right? When I was born, we didn't really even have a basic video game system and the internet wasn't around. And now my life is spent I don't know about you guys, but you know, my life is spent on my cell phone, on the computer, basically all day long. 
morning, noon, and night. Yep. And I think that as we're online, right, we're giving up so much information and we're always logging on to different services with some kind of username and password and identity. And then we're giving away all this information. Lots of times that information is being monetized. And then finally, to, to boot, a lot of times that information is getting hacked and stolen and lost and abused. And it seems like every other week, there's a new story in the news of some company that's lost everyone's data, and they're really sorry about it. And, you know, here's a $5 coupon because we lost all your data. I think we've got more apologies than we have anything else so far this year. seems like with the recent, <laughs> uh, we, we've just had the news, right, of Facebook's, what is it, 50 million user accounts breached. One of many, many and more to come across various different platforms. So, yeah, I think that certainly resonates both with myself and Austin and yeah. pretty much anyone connected to the internet right now. Right. And let's just not to pick on Facebook, but let's just look at one of Facebook's products, which is the login with Facebook button, right? That's, mm -hmm. it's pretty common. It's almost ubiquitous across the internet. And you don't really th even think about it much when you use it, you, you, you log into a service. And when you do all of that information, or at least some of the information that you're sharing with Facebook is being used by them to then serve you ads, monetize you, and ideally create a profit for their shareholders as, as Facebook is a publicly traded company. And that's the goal of, of publicly traded companies is to, is to return value to shareholders. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that, you know, bottom line is, is that you, you're really treated as a, as a piece of merchandise oftentimes with these, with these companies. And that's an unfortunate reality that we have to deal with. But kind of what can we do about it is much more interesting question, I think, to ask than, than is it happening? I think it's pretty clear that it's happening. If if you want to debate that, then then we can. But I, I think that's not a difficult <laughs> argument to win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not going to be debating you on that one. Yeah, All right. fair <laughs> enough. So, you know, we're, we're of the same mind there. And, and the really important question then is what can we do about it? Right. And I think that the first question that I have is, is are these systems that we're giving our identity and our and our data to secure? And I think by and large, the answer is no, because they're so centralized. And that honeypot, that trove of data that Facebook is creating when they have hundreds of millions of users all stored on a centralized database with I think what they said was that the data is unencrypted at rest, like that's mm. a pretty shameful piece of engineering work, if you ask me. But yep. besides that point, it's, it's this honey trove of data. And to kind of illustrate this point, I like to give a, a clever analogy. Really what they're doing is taking all of the user data, they're putting it in a castle, they're building up a high castle wall, they're putting a moat around the castle and there's some scary alligators around the moat in the castle. And they're saying to hackers, here's our honey trove of data, but you won't get to it because it's so well secured. Inevitably, people do, and they say, oh, darn, we got hacked again. Who would have thought that would happen? What a much better solution would be is a decentralized method of storing identity data. And it sounds almost cliche at this point, like, okay, decentralized is better. Like, I'm every blockchain company ever who's ever done an ICO <laughs> has said that that's the case, right? So I, I feel a little bit like a charlatan even saying that, but, but really, guys, like, it is a better solution to have it decentralized, especially identity data. Because when you do that, you're essentially taking that giant data trove in the castle and you're spreading it out into tiny little lockboxes throughout the kingdom. And for a thief to go into one of the homes and open up one of these lockboxes and steal 
only Austin's or only Matthew's data is not really worth their time, mm -hmm. right? That decentralized model spreads out the risk and the attack vector so much that hackers would just go off and do something else and go after a target which is more worthwhile. If you're owned at the hardware device level on your own personal machine, then you're, you're owned already. But if, you know, Facebook isn't doing a good job of protecting you because the design of the system is flawed, then I think that that's something that, you know, you should look for services which may have an alternative option for you. And I think in this case, you know, a decentralized model, perhaps of the, of the login functionality is a better one, right? And there's, there's other, you know, ways that we could kind of look at this. It's not only Facebook, right? It's also many other different companies, especially those that hold your, your financial and your identity information that could benefit from a decentralized model. So I, I'd say that that's kind of a long diatribe as to why I think sure. this topic is so important and also potentially what we could do with it. You know, we could talk with our feet, we could talk with our dollars, we could talk with our coins and, and use the systems that are truly decentralized as opposed to, you know, completely decentralized. So, sorry, completely yeah. centralized. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thinking about financial data and voting with your feet and your dollars, if you will. A lot of the time, I think that part of the reason why people stick around to less secure products or services is because they're more convenient or perhaps they provide a, a level of a product that wouldn't be available, at least or perceived to be available in an alternative. So in practicality, if somebody were to agree with you and, and say, yeah, I don't like the way that my data is being stored or used and I want to do something about that. Self-key, I imagine, would be a solution for them. But how would they use that solution in their day-to-day -day lives? Is, are there trade-offs? Is it difficult or easy to adopt? Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean the the convenience thing is is unfortunate. I think because uh, there there is a level where you have to create technology so easy to use that it has to compete with the incumbent player. And if it's not easier to use, then it really becomes a barrier to entry. And I think that blockchain as a whole is kind of at that stage where the usability is kind of tough. And, and I think that we yeah. will get over that uh, much in the same way that we did with the internet back in the day. Like nobody knew how to send an email. 20 years ago. And now like everybody's like, ha, an email, like my grandma can send that. Right. <laughs> so I, I think that probably handling private keys will get to that point where it's just so embedded in our day-to-day -day life that we don't kind of think about it. But with respect to self-key and kind of specifically how we help, we're really focused on products and services, which will in some way enhance your life when it comes to freedom and privacy. So for instance, one of the marketplaces that we have in self-key wallet in the self-key marketplace is residencies app, a passports app. And these are comparison apps that show you a list of different countries of the world where you actually can go and apply to become a resident in that country and actually move there. So that's sort of what I mean when I say vote with your feet. I mean, you, you really do have the option in this international world we live in to kind of go anywhere at any point. Now, there are going to be some financial limitations as to you know each and every one of us, what we can accomplish. And if you've got a family and you've got a job and you've got kids, that maybe seem frightening, but it's certainly by no means impossible for probably almost anyone in the world to do. And we're just trying to make those options you know, well-known as a first step, right? So it doesn't cost any money to explore and to see what those options might be. And then we want to make it more easy, more secure, more safe to actually sign up for those products and services, just for instance. And there are products and services that don't require you to move your life 
across the world. We also try to make it easier to sign up for different crypto exchanges. So that's another uh, one of the marketplaces that actually we're going to market with because we figure that you know people who are interested in blockchain, people who are interested in crypto, inevitably hold coins and would like to go to an exchange and then trade those coins, you know, potentially for other coins or, or fiat. So that's kind of one of the marketplaces that we're, we're focused on initially. And I could talk about other marketplaces yeah. as well, but I want to make sure I give you guys a chance to, to ask questions as well. Yeah. I mean, Edmund, I actually have a bit of a follow-up in, in some of that. I find it incredibly interesting. You touched on there around setting up a second passport, for example, right? And, and even then something on a much less grander scale, right? Like signing up to purchase cryptocurrency from a cryptocurrency exchange. It, it seems to me, and this is what I'm trying to get my head around quite a bit here, is this is a this is a two-way kind of stream. And how how reliant are you upon okay, let's let's use the example of a second passport. I'm assuming you're gonna to need to have some kind of like buy-in here from the individual other country, for example, that, that that you're working with and on a smaller scale like signing up to a cryptocurrency exchange whether it's working within their like existing infrastructure, building into their APIs, like how reliant are you and is this technology ultimately on the third parties that you're going to need to work with? Or am I completely missing the point here? No, I think that's a fair question. I mean, the first one is more easily answered, which is, are you required to get government consent to give these opportunities for immigration in the wallet? And the answer is no. We don't need to have any tie-in to the government system. Not that they exist anyway in most countries, to be frank. <laughs> um, but we're working with the lawyers, the agents who are processing these documents. We are in talks with some governments, and, and at some point, you know, that would be amazing to enable that type of functionality. However, I think we have to be pragmatic. And, and you know, what we're trying to do today is deliver this product and service in a way where it's as easily accessible as possible and as efficient and as easy as possible. So I don't know about you guys, but I've immigrated to several different countries and it is very difficult to do. I mean, the yeah. amount of paperwork, the amount of learning that you have to do. And then once you've gotten the visa, then you have to go set up a bank account. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a trivial both me and Austin talk about this a lot because we we've, yeah. we've both been through this. Uh, Austin originally from from the U.S. relocated to Brazil, now back in the U.S. Myself, if you haven't gathered from my accent, originally from Britain, relocated at one point to Ireland and then over to the U.S. And the 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 days of my life that have been spent through paperwork and speaking with immigration lawyers and sorting out visas it's it's a horrendous process and that, that's kind of where the, my initial question stemmed is knowing the convoluted processes that are already in place it, it almost seems to me like too good to be true that we can have a, a, a more simple solution to this <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are we are working hard to bring that solution, and uh, you know, Brazil is a particularly challenging country to immigrate to. So, um, kudos <laughs> to you there for doing it. Um, yeah. But I mean, the biggest thing to me, right, and to me is the paperwork that's involved in filling out the form. It's form after form after form. That's the the major thing that I'd like to kill first. Is can we just fill in the form quickly mm. with a form fill where it puts in my information? And then it sends it off to whoever's got to check it, and it's just kind of done. You know, how about the lawyer who's providing that immigration service in the in the third party country? Can we actually trust them? You know, there's no like place to look that up and, and see their ratings. You know, imagine a rating system that was actually censorship proof and not 
completely, you know, biased in some ways that rating systems online are where there's fake reviews mm -hmm. and you can't really tell what's real or not. So I think, you know, what we're trying to do at the core is, is build an identity system, which will link into other identity systems. And in particular, we're going after certain verticals that we find that identity is particularly challenging in. You know, if I'm sending up for a new email service, is my identity really that hard to kind of give to them? Probably not. I create a new username and a new password and I'm just kind of done. But we think that immigration is one of those where it's so tricky and very annoying, and, and it's kind of the, the fruit that's that's really juicy and kind of halfway up the tree. It's, it's maybe not the low-hanging fruit, it's maybe not the very top, but it's something that we have a background in, we, we do know how to how to solve these problems. So these products will be in the marketplace. There, there is no, there's no question about that. It's just a matter of time, and, and we have to kind of put in the legwork from a development standpoint to get it there. And, and it doesn't require the government in that country kind of saying, hey, we love self-key. It's, it's, it's sort of easier than that, than that goal. Okay. From a consumer standpoint, does this rely on mass adoption at all, or can it function even at a small scale in the way that you're describing? Yeah. So again, my goal is really that we could have it function at a small scale. I mean, obviously I have you know, an ambition to, to have this help as many people as we can, but we're really starting with kind of a niche audience, right? I mean, this isn't going to be something that my grandma uses, quite frankly, um, but it might be something that you know, a 20 something entrepreneur or someone who's a freelancer or someone who's interested in this topic in this area of, you know, digital nomadism or, or being global or cryptocurrency might have a compelling interest in, and it could be an amazing product for them. Right. So I think when you build a product, Airbnb is, is awesome at this. I think they, there's a really good podcast with the founder, Joe on Tim Ferriss. And, and there's other, there's other times when they've kind of recounted that this it's, it's how can you create an amazing experience for one person? You know, forget about creating an okay or a good experience for like a billion people that will like stun a venture capitalist and look really great on like right. a financial projection, like worry about like that one person can you can you create an amazing product for them so that's why we, we pay so much attention in our product development process to interviewing real live users of our app and trying to get iterative advice on how we can improve it and make it better specifically for them for that one guy who's got this problem and and our app can help them solve it so so that's mm -hmm. sort of how i'm facing it from a development standpoint and in terms of like scalability and in market size I do think that this is a market which is growing. I think that it's unlikely that there will be less people moving abroad in the future, right? Like I think mm -hmm. it's a fairly safe bet to say that people will continue to move across borders. It will continue to be hard <laughs> to move across borders. <laughs> and if there was a system that could help you do it, then you know you might use it, get benefit from it, and then tell your friend who you know is in the same situation. So, so that's kind of our go-to-market strategy. What we become in 10, 20 years, hopefully it's something much larger than you know an app for digital nomads. But at the time, you know, right now, that's that's really kind of a, a key focus for us. Yeah. Do you imagine that there could be like one identity solution to rule them all, or do you feel that this is a space where multiple solutions can coexist in harmony? I think it's already the latter. So if you look at something like the Decentralized Identity Foundation or DIFF, there's already five or six different decentralized identity companies. I actually think there's way more than that. There's yeah. probably, if you check on their website, you know, a couple dozen. And we're all contributing in our own way, but I think the ones that are the furthest ahead are contributing a DID standard. And what this means essentially is it's it's complicated and it's fast moving and there's there's lots of different topics that we could explore here, such as identity hubs, which is this whole kind of subsector. But the DID is essentially, if I'm 
you know, explaining it in layman's terms, a JSON blob that's machine readable in a way that's interoperable with other systems. Right. And in order for this to be a successful endeavor by all of the companies, we actually benefit from being interoperable with those other systems. If, if we mm -hmm. close off our, our castle walls and we try to create the same centralized system, then we've completely missed the boat. <laughs> and not only have we become centralized, we, we really aren't kind of getting the full benefit of interoperability with those other systems. So I really do think that this is a business situation where it would pay to be cooperative. So it doesn't mean that it has to be all sunshines and rainbows and, and yay, we're going to move in the same office together, but we can be you know, competitive in offering product and services that benefits the consumer in, in a competitive environment, non-monopolistic, but it does have an interoperability so that you could switch from, say, this other identity system to self-key, and that would work seamlessly. At least that's yeah. the premise that's been kind of designed and laid out by by some very smart folks. And I and it, that actually, it, it's very apt that you bring this up because one of our recent episodes, myself and Austin, we were talking about blockchain's application within the healthcare industry. And one really interesting snippet that we found when we were doing some research, which is also apt because it's Boston related as well, is that within Boston, Massachusetts, there are 26 different medical record languages that are completely inoperable between one another, incredibly inefficient, and it just causes absolute chaos when different medical records are being stored on different systems one can't be transferred over to the other and it seems like a consistent thread that we're hearing not even just within the digital identity space but just in general within a lot of the the big movements in the blockchain industry is like this push for of course decentralization but also interoperability which ultimately is the the antithesis of what we've talked about with the walled gardens these huge castles and moats around them that are being built based on proprietary data that can't be transferred and exchanged between other things so i think that's really great to hear that that's your viewpoint in in this space in particular yeah i mean i think if you want me to speak to the hospitals i do think that healthcare is a particularly challenging use case having done a healthcare startup before uh, there's these gigantic entrenched interests in that particular industry, and there's there's a ton of regulation, but it, it clearly is a good use case, right? I mean, it, it makes sense that you would, as a patient, be able to take your EHR from one facility to another facility and have it just seamlessly work. And you don't really necessarily want to care or see if it's running on some fancy dancy blockchain technology. You just want to get your doctor's appointment or your prescription filled and not have to fill out a bunch of forms a second time. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a, you know, the point that was brought up earlier, I forget whether it was by you, Austin or you, Matthew, but the, but the usability I think is really, really, really the key question for mm. projects that are developing in this space. It's, can you create an app that's usable? Because the technology is there, it is 10 times better, and you can build amazing use cases on it, but can you make it usable and can you get the buy-in from those third-party institutions to actually you know, get to some sort of scale or impact people in a way that's meaningful enough at kind of that low traction, I guess you could say, where you're working really, really amazing for a few people and then gradually you kind of build up that scale. More of a bottom-up versus top-down approach. Yeah, I think we completely agree with you there that the usability 
is easily one of the greatest barriers to entry for the common consumer right now, but also one of the greatest opportunities for projects in this space. And I think that projects are, for the most part, really starting to wake up to this, at least the ones with well-aware leadership. At least, I guess, anecdotally, try being a product designer with blockchain keywords in your LinkedIn profile and (laughs) see how many recruiters are reaching out to you with this amazing opportunity. It's gotten insane. You just gave a job to like a hundred listeners right there. (laughs) And, uh, and, and on that note, I think we're coming pretty much up to, up to time now. This has been a great discussion. I think we could chat for hours around digital identities and i think i speak for austin as well here that we we really wish you all the best in uh, a lot of your endeavors whether it be self-key or one of the many projects that i'm sure you'll you'll start up over the next few years as well on top of this so thanks a lot for coming on the show edmund but before we we part company here why don't you let our listeners know the best way that they can get in touch with you learn more about you and the projects that you're working on Sure. Uh, So the best place would be if you're uh, looking for a KYC solution for your ICO or your fintech company, you can go to kyc-chain.com. That's kind of our backend system that that helps make some of the uh, stuff in SelfKey possible. Or if you're uh, interested in our identity wallet, you can go to selfkey.org. And we'd be more than happy if you downloaded our wallet, which is free and open source. You can audit as well and uh, <laughs> check it out and, and try it. And and uh, we've got all of our community links there on that website, selfkey.org as well. So you can check those out. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Edmund. We'll make sure we share out all of those links in the show notes. All the best for the future. Awesome. Thank you, Austin. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and want to show your appreciation to myself and Matt, make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on the CastBox app or your favorite podcasting platform. We'd really appreciate that. And if you haven't already, you can download the free CastBox app where you'll find us as one of the CastBox original shows. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing, and you can follow us on Twitter at the coin offering. Finally, you can ask us any questions you have by emailing us at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. The Decrypting Crypto Podcast is a Castbox original show, and its contents should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.